One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We believe that this issue should be preserved from geopolitical tensions and fights. At some stage, given the state of US-China relationship, some decisions were taken to stop cooperating on environmental science. This, in my view, and I'm not speaking for my colleagues, is stupid. It's an area where we need US, EU, China, India to cooperate. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, and this week we're going to talk about global warming and particularly some of the more off-the-wall ideas to mitigate it, including solar geoengineering. If you haven't heard of this, it's the idea of basically pumping sulfur dioxide into the upper atmosphere, where these tiny little particles of pollution act like micro-mirrors reflecting back the sunlight, and it affects cooling the planet down. Think of it as like, you know, kind of an invisible umbrella being put over the planet. Now, this idea has always seemed a bit bananas to me. It's actually been the subject of lots of science fiction. There's even people talking about putting space mirrors out, way out in space to block the sun's rays. But this idea of engineering sunlight has recently started gaining traction as the world wakes up to what appears to be just a harsh reality, which is that there's no way we are going to hit the 1.5 degree warming target that the world agreed on back in Paris in 2015. We're just moving too slow. Emissions are still going up. And that target just looks increasingly fanciful. So the question then is, are we screwed? Are huge swathes of the planet about to become unlivable. Well, that is what this week's guest is coming on to talk about. He is Pascal Lamy. He is the former head of the World Trade Organization. And these days he chairs something called the Climate Overshoot Commission, which, as you might guess, it's an international body that was set up to basically provide solutions to the problem that will arise if indeed we overshoot the 1.5 degree goal. So to me, it seems like a totally sensible and logical founding principle. And what is interesting is that the commission just came out with their first report last month. They had a big event in New York. And one of the options that they said should absolutely be more fully explored is 
solar geoengineering. So this is proper science fiction becomes real type stuff, which is interesting given that the commission is made up of world leaders, diplomats, economists, scientists, you know, not hair shirt wearing Looney Tunes, but people who are actually quite sensible, but also see um, the writing on the wall. So I think it's an indication of where we are as a planet. And if we're headed off a cliff's edge before we shoot off like Wiley e. Coyote, we better start working on a parachute. And this is one of those ideas. So perhaps building a fleet of planes to blast into the upper atmosphere trillions of micromirrors is the answer. Who knows? Anyhow, I think you'll find the conversation very interesting. I know I did. So here he is, Pascal Lamy, the former head of the WTO and chairman of the Climate Overshoot Commission. Enjoy. I came across the Climate Overshoot Commission, and I just thought it was immediately very interesting and of course, you've come out with this report in the last several days. And I was just wondering if we could start with the commission itself. How did it come together and why did it come together? What is the purpose? The Climate Overshoot Commission is a creation of the Paris Peace Forum. And the Paris Peace Forum was created, co-founded in 2018 uh, by the President of the French Republic, myself, and a few others, as a new venue for dealing with uh, global issues in a manner which is innovative. That is, instead of bringing only together diplomats who represent sovereigns, who have diplomatic conversations, build treaties, build organizations, and we know that this way of doing things is, for the moment, not very productive. We take another way for international cooperation, which is uh, engaging others than state actors, not that we dispense from working with, with state actors, but we bring in NGOs, businesses, large academic institutions, sub-national entities like cities or regions to address global problems, which we need to address, but which the international system for the moment is not good at addressing. So that's the ambition. And of course, environment, climate, global warming is one of the five or six big issues which we deal with at the Paris Peace Forum. And our habit is to try and address with this multi-stakeholder purpose-led coalition, topics which are at the border of existing global governance. For instance, what if we overshoot 1.5 degrees? Right. And two years ago, the Paris Peace Forum decided that we had to look at this case of overshoot and then make a series of recommendations. And we created this commission, which I was asked to chair. At the time, I was the chair of the Paris Peace Forum. Now I'm the vice chair because the chair is a Mexican, André Goria, because the Paris Peace Forum governance is 50-50 north-south. I composed the Climate Overshoot Commission with 12 people, seven from the quote-unquote south, five from the quote-unquote north, this North-South proportion was deliberately 
tilted in favor of the South, because I personally believe that developing countries are not waiting enough in the international conversation about climate and global warming. And we came forward with a series of 30 or 40 recommendations as a first major international attempt to propose an integrated strategy to address the big problem we have with the high risk of overshooting this 1.5 degree limit, which was agreed at uh, Paris in 2015. So that's what I find interesting is that, the, you know, especially I'm out here in Silicon Valley. I talk to people all the time, investors, entrepreneurs, people working on this problem in one way or another. And it seems to be a growing consensus that 1.5 is already like, that's not realistic. That we're already, you know, kind of shooting past that is already baked in. And I presume that the founding of the Climate Overshoot Commission, the clues in the name, that that's why you guys founded this, you know, like this 1.5 is probably not going to be achieved. And so it's focusing on, okay, well, how do we deal with that? And then the second question I have is, when you step back, this is founded by the Paris Peace Forum. It would seem to me that that is because you anticipate that more extreme climate change will have an effect on peace, on society, on movements of people, on these kind of bigger second-order effects that perhaps people aren't thinking about right now? On your first point, we spent a lot of time building a consensus within the Commission about what we, what we would say about this 1.5. The landing zone, what we say at the end of the day, is that we believe that overshooting 1.5 degree is not inevitable, but that A, the probability of not overshooting uh, is decreasing every day, and B, if we really want to stick to this Paris Agreement red line, we have to ramp up action against global warming in a very, very large and rapid way. But we do not exclude that this could be done. I mean, the odds are not with us for the moment. Yeah. And if we look at the track record of what's happened uh, since 2015, we are not on track. But we still believe that given the impact, there still is a possibility of mobilizing political energy in order to not overshoot, or, and we enter into these details in the report, or if we overshoot temporarily, then make sure that quite soon after that, we decrease the temperature so that overshooting will not be a permanent feature or even a trajectory that will lead from 1.5 to 1.6 to 1.7, and which would be absolutely catastrophic. And you're absolutely correct. For instance, in terms of migrations, the International Migration Organization told us that last year, more than half of human migration was triggered by climate change. And so that's things like, I presume, droughts, famine, 
the decreased livability of larger parts of countries and areas. Absolutely. And they, they I mean, it now has a name in international conversation, which is, uh, they call it climate mobility. And, you know, Anote Tong, uh, who was the former president of Kiribati, can uh, tell you extremely clearly what happens if the coastal uh, sea rise uh, drown a number of islands in the Pacific. Huh? Some of these islands have already started entering in conversation with Australia and New Zealand on big relocation plans. We, for instance, need probably to review the legal status of international migrants who are there mostly for the moment for political reasons. This statute is reasonably protective, but there is nothing specific which would protect a climate migrant. So we make proposals in this respect. Yeah, there is a, a, I can't remember where the town is. I think it's somewhere on the far northern coast of North America, maybe near northern Washington state, or maybe it's Alaska. I can't remember. It kind of doesn't matter. The point is there's a town that they're relocating their entire town 300 feet up a nearby hillside. It's a small town, but they are basically going to dismantle and remake their town on higher ground, which seems like kind of a crazy thing when you think about it. But I presume you guys have talked to a lot of people who said, you know, well, this is what we're going to have to do. This is the reality that's already facing some, as you say, especially in the global south, but increasingly around the world. Absolutely. And of course, this uh, example you take is uh, probably at uh, an extremely high cost. Yes. Which then raises the question, which we try to address, of looking at cutting emissions, looking at adaptation, looking at carbon capture, or even looking at geoengineering. What is the best option? The answer probably is a combination of this, although with a clear priority for cutting emissions, and we have absolutely no doubt about this, uh, we have invented uh, the sort of care agenda, C-A-R-E, cut, adapt, remove, and explore geoengineering. Yeah. And the C is before the A, which is before the R, which is before the E. <laughs> uh, and right. what the example you, you take is one action about adaptation, extremely costly, and we believe, and this is why we make these many proposals, some of which are fairly technical, that we need an international conversation across the board, not just conferences on cutting emissions or adaptation or scientific caucuses for looking at carbon capture uh, or even research in uh, labs on geoengineering, we need to look at that across the board. And one of the reasons why, in our view, we are not where we should be is that this is not happening enough, and many countries are at a loss to decide where should they... We know we have to invest, but where is the best return on investment that gives the maximum cooling effect or non-warming effect is a conversation which we believe is absolutely indispensable. And our intention, and let's hope it will work, is that we provide the intellectual and technical toolbox to play with this question. 
the thing that kind of caught my eye and I think caught a lot of people's eye is this idea of around solar geoengineering. And I was talking to somebody in this universe from the academic side and they said, you know, this is obviously not a new idea. There's something like 2,000 different academic papers that have been written into kind of how this would work, the potential, the perils, et cetera. But I'm curious as to, as you talk about that care agenda, cut, adapt, remove, ex, uh, explore, why did you end up on solar engineering in particular? Is it because kind of bang for the buck, it's potentially it has the potential to be the cheapest, most direct, most effective way to, at least for a time, reduce solar radiation. And for people who don't know, and I'm sure you are more deeply steeped than I am, it's the Mount Pinatubo effect, which was Mount Pinatubo, I think, erupted in 1992, threw up a bunch of um, sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, and it actually cooled the planet by half a degree for the next year or two because it basically is reflecting sunlight. And the idea is to basically recreate that effect, but do it with potentially like a fleet of planes that are like putting out large quantities of the stuff in the stratosphere. But I'd love to understand kind of of all this big 100 plus page report, why solar geoengineering, why you say, don't do it now, let's near term ban because we don't fully understand the science, but why you're particularly saying we should really look into this and figure out if this is indeed a good option. You're right. The media splash we made the day we presented the report in New York. If you take the proportions of what media have written or spoken about, two-thirds of that is about geoengineering and, more precisely, solar radiation modification. The reason for that is simple. Media uh, are about news, and uh, news is that we have a problem with global warming. News is not that we risk uh, overshooting. News is not that we don't cut enough. News is not that uh, we need adaptation, uh, not that uh, maybe carbon removal should not. News is on this solar radiation modification issue. And on top of that, it is extremely controversial. So something which is new and highly controversial <laughs> scores. Yes, high news score, correct, <laughs> correct. So, I mean, and, and, we, and we indeed uh, expected this to happen. The reality being that among possible geoengineering options that would not emit less but deal with the consequences of having emitted or even emitting, on the things, if you cut emitting, that's great. We need to do that. But you still have a problem with what you would do with the uh, stock of a uh, carbon dioxide, which is in the atmosphere. So then uh, we need to remove or, or to find a way to lower the temperature and the fundamental idea against solar radiation uh, modification, uh, reflection, is to emulate, it's a sort of replica of what volcanoes do when there are eruptions that send a lot of dust in the atmosphere and that history has proved lower for some time the uh, temperature because all these micro particles are tiny micro mirrors that send back solar radiation 
so that they do not get through the atmosphere and they lower the uh, greenhouse effect. We've looked at the universe of possible geoengineering. Uh, we've looked at uh, cloud brightening, for instance, which is another technology which is sending water into clouds in some places, in some parts of the ocean, in order to produce a cooling effect. Why we have focused on solar radiation modification is because this is the most researched one. And this is the most risky one, given its relatively low cost and very high possible unintended consequences. So at this stage, this is studied in labs by specialists, basically physics. There will have to be some sort of field experiment one day. And by the way, some have already started doing it. And there are already fictions about this who have been written, or even a country entering into that with enormous consequences, some beneficial, maybe, some very negative, maybe, on countries. So we've looked into that. We've listened to a lot of science. A part of science is dead against and says, oh, don't you open that box. This is Dr. Strangelove. Once you open the box like this, you, know, you never uh, not use it. Others say, this is a possible solution. So let's invest in that. We, in a way, are in the middle. Our recommendation is a moratorium on relatively large-scale experiments defined as experiments that would have a risk of transboundary impact and harm. When you say transboundary harm, what does that mean? Like basically, if say China does it and it affects you know neighboring countries, for example? Absolutely. I see. We take the, the definition of the Convention of Copenhagen and of the Rio Convention on Transboundary Harm, which is border neighbors, but also IC, for instance, or the uh, atmosphere and the stratosphere, who are sort of non, non-controlled areas. Right. And we propose principles to govern research, to make sure that research in this area is funded in a transparent way, that it's not you know, some sort of coalition of a fossil fuel industry that uh, try to distort attention or even action from cutting emission. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because that's the thing, right? Is it's, I mean, of all the universe, and this is like a very human impulse. It's like, you know, when we're talking about mitigating climate change, we're talking about basically remaking the entire way the world works, basically. And that is many, many trillions of dollars and huge amount of upheaval and change. And it's difficult. This is like for a few tens of billions, like a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction, theoretically, you can just put this invisible sunshade all over the planet. And then we can go back to doing what we're doing. So it feels like there's this kind of uh, moral hazard aspect to it. And I was wondering, again, you used to run the World Trade Organization. You guys have presidents, former presidents and world leaders as part of this commission. Calling for this moratorium, is that because you get a sense that as we kind of grapple with this reality of that we're probably going to shoot past 1.5 and that is going to make things very bad when we talk about sea level rise or extreme heat or drought, whatever, that there are countries, big countries, who are like, you know what, let's be realistic. This is not going to happen. We are not going to get our act together in time to put off some of the the very worst aspects of climate change. So we're going to just do this unilaterally. We're going to create the world's invisible sun umbrella just in case and we're just going to do this on our own. Yes, to some extent, because our philosophy, where we are united within the Commission, is that we should leave no stone unturned. Problem is so big, so urgent, that morally, ethically, it would be a mistake not to look into that we could squander a possible, even remote, chance of protecting uh, humanity from uh, the consequences of excessive global warming. Now, this being said, we totally recognize that at this stage, recommending not using it, which we do not do, but even open bar experiment would be (laughs) extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous which is why we propose this moratorium. And the version of the moratorium we propose is not to have a big international conference where hundreds of sovereigns would together negotiate a treaty during 20 years and then build an organization that would be in charge of implementing. We propose that today or tomorrow, sovereigns enter unilaterally into this moratorium in saying, I, country X, decide not to go for large-scale experiments until blank, 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 blank. This is our recommendations. And by the way, we are even ready <laughs> with my colleagues to discuss uh, with country X if country X wants a bit of advice on what the user's notice of the moratorium is. 
Have you had any incoming from Country X or Country Y or Country Z being like, no, you know what? We're going to go ahead and just start this because we see the writing on the wall. Things are going to be terrible. We're a coastal nation. We have, you know, a third of our population lives on the water, and this is going to be absolutely catastrophic for us. We are going to start running this global experiment. Sorry, we're not waiting. Absolutely. And to put it very simply, and there's always a risk to be very simple in this extremely complex question, but in our view, the rational moral attitude is invest and enter into this moratorium. Invest in research to better understand it. Absolutely. Invest in research. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a few billions or tens of billions compared to the rest of the size of the economic and financial yes. number. It's a drop in the ocean. So invest, enter into the moratorium with a precise user notice, have the necessary international cooperation on research and transparency, and notably bringing in much more southern research into the picture. For the moment, research is mostly U.S. and to some extent a bit EU. And by the way, both U.S. and EU have recently said or decided to commit more resources to researching solar radiation modification. Yeah, the White House just put out that report uh, this summer, right? Talking about they need to research it. Absolutely. But we also believe that this must be done with an international framework so that the suspicion that a country is investing in that in order to fabricate a version of solar radiation modification that, that would benefit to this country and might cost to others that this sort of logic suspicion is not there. So we, we need science governance and we need international governance, not least to oversee or overview of this. And by the way, coincidentally, I bumped uh, during the summer at uh, some sort of these uh, international uh, seminars with a very successful Austrian fiction writer called uh, Mark Ellsberg, who told me he had published last March, a book, it's still in uh, German, which is called Degree Celsius, the scenario of which I will uh, not disclose. Yes. But we start with one big country entering into solar radiation modification, and then it works, and then the thing is sabotage, and then you have a sort of termination shock problem. Termination shock is like, is some for some reason... In- because you have to keep maintaining it, right? Absolutely. I looked into some of the research, and it seems that there's lots of different ways to do it, right? But one would be build a special fleet of planes that can fly at a higher altitude, like 60,000 feet or something. And then they're kind of constantly going up, releasing sulfur dioxide at that elevation, and they have to keep replenishing it because it falls out after a year, 18 months, or whatever. And that, let's say we do that tomorrow, and all of a sudden, we're 1.5 degrees cooler, and it's like, oh, we can breathe a sigh of relief. And then there's World War Three, or somebody, <laughs> for some reason, sabotages that fleet of planes, and all of a sudden, we stop doing it, but we've been continuing to release CO2 into the atmosphere. But so all of a sudden, it's like you know, the someone uncorks 
what we've been doing or uncorks that effect and all of a sudden we shoot up to three degrees because we have even more CO2 in the atmosphere because, yeah. Absolutely. This is roughly the uh, basic argument of this uh, new fiction by uh, Mark uh, Ellsberg. It sounds like uh, some proper dystopic uh, science fiction. i, I got to check this out. I mean, the reality is that this is, at this stage, extremely risky because fine if you reduce the temperature by one or two degrees in a part of the planet, but if the price for that is that you increase it by one or two more degrees for another part of the planet, then you have a big problem. What are the dangers? And are those well understood or is that the point? Is that we don't fully understand the dangers and we need to research them? That's exactly the problem. Unintended consequences are for the moment not properly assessed to take any risk of effect of this kind, the distribution of which would be unpredictable and probably extremely unfair. The basic scenario being that countries that would have the capacity to do that would be richer countries, and richer countries are usually northern countries, and if the negative consequences are for the others, i.e. poorer or more uh, equatorial uh, or tropical countries, this would be a catastrophe. Right, because you could just put SO2 in the stratosphere of, say, in the northern hemisphere and just keep it there and then be like, well, we'll do some in the south, but you guys got to fund it for yourselves or whatever it may be, and it doesn't work. That is what justifies a very high level of precaution, which, by the way, is a fundamental principle of uh, environmental uh, international law. Yeah. Is the worry just about the equity of it, or is it actually also about the science and what it might do to the planet? In other words, if we're pushing up, it's pollution, but it's a kind of a useful pollution. You know, it's basically what caused acid rain, but it would be so high that my understanding is that it wouldn't cause acid rain, but there'd be not enough of it to kind of cause acid rain, for example. But we just don't understand what would happen if we just put a ton of sulfur dioxide into the upper atmosphere. That's exactly the problem. And uh, if it's a ton, it may be within the limits of <laughs> allowed experiments that would not fall under the moratorium. There is a threshold where the risk is such that for the moment, at the stage of research and modeling, we do, and you know, a, a lot of that for the moment, is done with virtual systems, with uh, digital twins, models that replicate the way the atmosphere, the wind, the current, the temperature works, the distribution of currents in the ocean, of winds on the surface. And of course, we probably need, I would say, five or 10 years of research before getting there. But the fact that we need time to investigate this possible effect, for us, is not a reason to postpone the examination of these options. And if we postpone it, we take a risk. And somehow, it's, uh, you know, of course, it's risky, but it's a risk-risk approach. And just kind of circling back to the point of the Climate Overshoot Commission's existence, it seems to me that the point is grabbing the world by the shoulders and being like, look, let's face reality. 
and I don't understand necessarily why 1.5 degrees, if that's a true kind of line in the sand beyond which things start to accelerate or you reach these tipping points where things kind of irreversibly start to change, snow, st- you know, ice caps start to melt, whatever it may be. But it, it's this recognition that we are entering a world where we're going to have to take some pretty extreme measures to ensure that the world remains livable and we should be realistic about that and start planning for that now. Is that is it fair to say that that's kind of the, the founding ethos? That's exactly the point. But we try to do that not just in ringing the alarm bell, which others do extremely well. If you listen to what the UN Secretary General has said this autumn about uh, global warming, he uh, basically said... It's not uh, anymore about warming, it's about boiling. And this is, I think, a pretty strong sort of ringing the bell, alert mode. This is done. We're not there to, to, to ring an alert. We're there to propose solutions, recommendations, which we have very carefully crafted in listening to a lot of experts on how we can cut emissions more and more rapidly how we need to better use the limited available resources in order to adapt, move to an economic system that incentivizes carbon removal, which is for the moment not really the case, and finally address this uh, geoengineering issue, which we've just discussed. But again, what we propose are modes of action that would help ramping up our game against uh, global warming. Some of these will be controversial. We, for instance, propose to stop using fossil in the north and leave some time to be negotiated for least industrialized countries. Industrialized countries, in our view, should stop using fossil fuel and move 100% renewables. There should be some time left for less industrialized countries. But this is very controversial. Yeah. We are advising to look at uh, carbon take-back obligations. What is that? The stock of carbon, which is in the atmosphere, yes. is there because some industries or some countries have emitted what is up there. Yes. America and Europe pr- principally, historically. Absolutely. Although, yeah, that's true in, in historic terms. But if you look at uh, China in the recent decades, China uh, has now higher CO2 emission ratio per head, per head than Europe. Right. They still have you know, 55% of their energy uh, comes from coal. I mean, they are, they, they've invested a lot in renewables and they are higher in renewables than US and EU, but they still have more than half of their energy, which is produced by coal, which is the most and far from far the most carbon emitting. So we suggest that take back carbon obligations should be considered in order to not just cut emissions, which again, we have to do as a priority. This is the priority of priorities. But once you've done that, you're left with what's in the atmosphere. And in the eyes of many developing countries, whose emissions per head are, you know, around one ton, uh, whereas the U.S. is uh, probably now around uh, 10 or 12, China a bit less, uh, Russia a bit more. For many of these 
for non-industrialized developing countries, the main problem is that if you don't remove what is there, it will be there for the next three centuries, and they are the ones that would have to bear the most negative consequences. So the idea is then, so like, say we're America and we're at 10 tons per capita per person to step one or concurrently move to renewables and at the same time build giant new plants to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. In other words, to kind of subtract what we've added over the past couple hundred years. Absolutely. This is one of the options, which is to remove and store inorganic carbon dioxide, a sort of industrial technological way. There is another one, which is use nature, forest, uh, mangroves, Poseidonies, which are uh, not algae, uh, but sort of sea forests, to absorb carbon. There already is this big uh, green wall project uh, in Africa. So part of the removal capacity lies in industry and part lies in nature. And what we, what we say, and we've looked at that very carefully, is that in many cases, nature-based solutions that absorb organic carbon and their stock it, like soil regeneration, for instance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, lots of farming techniques lead to emitting carbon if you farm. There are other techniques that lead to storing carbon if you farm. So there right. is a whole field there. And of course, what we call uh, with this uh, technocratic jargon, co-benefits of nature-based solutions are extremely high because this is good for nature. This provides employment. This is good for human health. So again, if you enter into the detail, there are options and trade-offs that need to be studied. The carbon take-back obligation is an interesting idea. And I presume that would require, you know, okay, this is what we have, parts per million. America, you're responsible for 27%. Europe, you're responsible for 23%. China, you're responsible for 20%, whatever it may be. And I imagine there's have to be some kind of economic framework set up to kind of help get that off the ground and fund it and continue to incentivize or penalize for not doing that. But it would require basically carbon removal would itself be a massive new industry where you'd have to build big plants to suck, you know, suck in air and clean it up and then blow it out. I mean, it's uh, to the point around where we started that these trillions of dollars, that's where you get, that's how you get to those big numbers. Absolutely. The problem is that this will only happen if there is an economic incentive to do it. I.e., for instance, if you can sell this carbon, which is in a stock somewhere, and you're paid for that, and for the moment, there are carbon markets here and there, but they are not organized. There is nothing like a global carbon market. If I'm a farmer in Africa, and I want to monetize part of my natural capital because I farm in good conditions carbon-wise, if I can sell this on a market, I will do it. But then you come into this difficult problem, which is, is the value of one ton non-emitted the same as the value of one 
don't remove them. Right. And this is very complex economically, philosophically. We, by the way, take the position that one ton removed is not as worth as one ton non-emitted. And we explain why. But, you know, I'm entering into details of this kind because at the end of the day, these trade-offs need to be more seriously considered. Before I let you go, you know, you ran the WTO. Now you're working on the climate problem through the lens of kind of global peace and harmony. And we are where we are in 2023. And as we speak in the last couple of days, uh, the UK government has rolled back some of its, you know, green transition targets, um, much to the chagrin of many people, which isn't particularly surprising because as we've been discussing, this stuff is very costly. It's very hard. It's very disruptive to lots of vested interests. It's just difficult. And I'm just wondering from where you sit and all the conversations you have, how do you think about this? Are you pessimistic? Are you of the view that we're going to blow past 1.5, but you know we're going to figure it out and we're going to come up with ways to mitigate and adapt and start reversing this trend and it's, you know, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be okay? I mean, where, how, how do you think about this given we're effectively trying to herd all the cats on the planet. <laughs> it's very difficult to do, especially when so much is at stake. No, that's a, that's a fundamental question. As far as UK is concerned, the reality so far was that UK was slightly ahead of EU in established trajectory for moving to zero carbon. So the fact that they slow down a bit, I don't think is a major problem as long as, and I'm speaking in their interest, they keep moving with the EU pace. It's the moment they would start moving lower than the EU pace, slower than the EU pace, that then this would generate more economic and border control problems. Now, on your main point, we believe that this issue should be preserved from geopolitical tensions and fights. At some stage, given the state of US-China relationship, some decisions were taken to stop cooperating on environmental science. This, in my view, and I'm not speaking for my colleagues, is stupid. It's an area where we need US, EU, China, India to cooperate. Yeah. Problem being that Given that the Paris Agreement in 2015 is built on nationally determined contribution, i.e. we all go to zero, but the way to go there, the trajectory to go there, the policy instruments we use to go there are different, then there is a risk of traffic jam, Yeah, which is a bit of what's happening. If you look at, for instance, uh, border measures like uh, the carbon border adjustment of the EU or the uh, IRA legislation uh, in the US, which provide for massive subsidies, which inevitably distort uh, the competitive uh, game in international trade. So the reality is that we need a table where the various options and actions are compared. And for instance, we propose that as far as decarbonization needs to 
carbon measures that affect international trade, we create within the WTO what we call a comparability forum. That there should be a place where if I do it this way, if you do it this way, and we both believe we're right, we discuss what is the right way. And maybe at the end of the day, I will recognize that you're right to do it your way. I'm right to do it my way. And we mutually recognize the way we do it and we set a level playing field. But this conversation, in our view, is absolutely necessary. And again, we hope that we provide the necessary bits and pieces of this puzzle that still needs to be put together at global level. Cops like the ones we will have in Dubai in December uh, 2023 yeah. may be occasions to do that, but we need much, much more of that. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Pascal for taking the time. He actually called in from Tunisia. You know, diplomats like that just seem to be uh, globetrotting all the time. Um, so I thank him for the time. And thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors. Yeah, that's it for me this week. I'm always on the Twitters, at Danny Fortson. I don't tweet much, but I am always there scrolling through. So if you want to find me there, find me there. Or you can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And check out what I'm up to in the paper at thetimes.co.uk. That's it for me this week. Back next week with another scintillating episode. And until then, bye-bye.